you know, Biden could come in and wave a magic wand and fix all of the damage overnight. And they'd be like, oh, that wand was made in China. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the roundup, is highly sought-after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, writer, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend Susan Del Percio. Susan, it's been a minute. Thank you for being here. It's always good to see you. Great to be with you. I'm really looking forward to this. So pumped for this panel. Also, returning to the roundup, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder and advisor to the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC. Our good friend, dear Mike Madrid. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. I'm looking forward to this too. It could be explosive. We're going to see how this turns out. <laughs> see how the Andy Cole We're just going to work on our breathing. Gotta work That's on, what we're I've been do. advised to work on my breathing to calm myself and to speak less. <laughs> be heard less, so I'm going to be working on that today. And hopefully we won't scare him away on his Roundup debut. Andy Kroll is also joining us. Andy is an investigative reporter for ProPublica, where he covers voting, politics, and threats to democracy. He's the former Washington bureau chief for Rolling Stone magazine, where he wrote extensively about the Seth Rich case. He's also written for Mother Jones, National Journal, and the California Sunday Magazine. And by the way, he's the author of A Death on W Street, The Murder of Seth Rich and the Age of Conspiracy. Andy and I had a great discussion about his book that we released on the feed around September 14th. You should go check that out. Andy, it's great to see you. Welcome to a roundup. I'm thrilled to be here. I am bracing myself for what is about to come. But, uh, you know, just just remember to breathe. Go easy on me. (laughs) On this week's roundup. First, we'll discuss OPEC's move to slash oil production, the United Nations calling on central banks, including the Fed, to halt interest rate increases and what this is going to do to the political environment going into November. Next up, we'll look at President Joe Biden's visit to Florida after the state was ravaged by Hurricane Ian and what the Biden-DeSantis meeting could mean for the 2024 election cycle. Then finally, we'll discuss the Georgia Senate race and the Daily Beast's report Herschel Walker paid for a girlfriend's abortion and whether Georgia voters are going to think this is the bombshell that the chattering class seems to think it will be. But there is more. For our Politicology Plus subscribers only, we are going to talk about the media. Specifically, we're going to look at the difference in criticism of the media from the left and from the right, and the power of traditional journalism in our choose-your-own-adventure news landscape. If you want to join us for that and a whole lot more, Politicology Plus subscription is what gets you into our private ad-free version of this podcast, where we talk about additional strategy and analysis that we don't make available on the public show. There are two ways you can get it. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to the Politicology Show and tap the button that says Try Free. Or you can also sign up directly with us at politicology.com slash plus. And I should note, by the way, we just made some big updates. And uh, while everybody else is raising prices, understandably, because of inflation, we just went the other way and dropped the price of our annual plan by more than half. So if you have been uh, on the fence, waiting to pull the trigger, want to join us uh, in the after party, now's a great time to do that. We will dig in right after this. On Wednesday, a coalition of oil-producing nations, led by Russia and Saudi Arabia, announced that they're going to cut oil production by 2 million barrels per day, which could raise gas prices worldwide, worsen the risk of a global recession, and aid Russia in its war in Ukraine, according to the Washington Post. The move received a blistering reaction from the Biden White House and came after Biden's meeting with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in July. Uh, Biden was then attempting to alleviate the global oil shortage caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The Post writes that the drop in production is going to raise the price of oil and help Russia pay for Putin's war in Ukraine. It's also going to be a test of Europe's resolve as they face higher gas prices and are teetering on the edge of a sharp economic downturn across the continent. And as we all know, winter is coming. The move will also likely cause higher gas prices in the U.S. right before the midterms that are coming in just over a month. We're already starting to see those increases. Uh, So, Mike, why don't you lead off here? At the end of summer, right, the gas prices were falling. Polling looked to – it started to improve for Democrats. uh, And now gas prices are going to start ticking back up. And I wonder – 
how much of the midterms are really just hinging on the price at the pump and feelings about the economy, uh, prices at the pump, I should say, as a proxy for how the economy is doing for many voters? Well, probably enough to, to have an impact on what's, you know, what's emerging as probably one of the tightest midterm election cycles in recent memory, or at least in living memory. Let, let's take a step back. I mean, petrodollars fuel so much of the rising authoritarian movement that we've dealt with, and we all know that, that, that Vladimir Putin has been engaged in a global conflict with the West for the better part of a, you know, a decade, at least probably more like 15 years. This should, should surprise absolutely no one. Not just because he's trying to have an impact in the midterms, which which I, I genuinely do believe that that is a part of this calculation. I mean, they mess with our elections. <laughs> we know that, right? So so I, I do believe that's a, a part of it. But I also believe that um, you know, Putin's in a corner now. And what has always fueled Russian expansionism, what has what has literally fueled it, has been the price of oil. It's it's that that is that is the money that they use to spread around to Western democracies to buy off politicians to buy off uh, advocacy organizations. Uh, the Republican Party obviously is a big part of that and what's been, been complicit in that. But, but more than that, it also fuels the war machine. And so he, he's, he's, got, he's got a lot of problems right now. He's in deep trouble in the Donbass. But, but more importantly, as we've talked about uh, maybe ad nauseum, he's actually winning the global war, I think, in a lot of ways, if you look at what they're trying to do strategically. And the the best way to shut down this machine is 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 surprisingly if, if they can if, if the Ukrainians continue at the pace with which they are to reclaim all these Russian held territories, we are now openly hearing about regime change. That's a fascinating dynamic, and and Putin's going to get more desperate. And so an act like this, it's not only not surprising. I think it should be expected. I do think it's going to have and impact in, in the elections. I don't know unless there's an enormous, enormous shock to, to the system um, if it isn't already baked in. Like people who are voting on the economy, are, they're there. They're voting. They, they've been there since the early part of the year. Uh, and if you can't shake them off with, with you know, the, 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 the drop in the price in gas, you're not, you're not adding to it with, with people who uh, are going to be paying more at the pump. I just I don't see that. Um, especially in, in the wake of the Dobbs decision and, and the issue set that has motivated sort of these non-traditional con- constituencies. So will, will it have an impact? Yes. Um, will it determine the balance of power? I mean, arguably, anything can because it is so close. Um, I think the bigger, the bigger issue is, in many ways, this is Russia meddling with our economy, the global economy, and it is also Russia – um, meddling um, with our with our elections again in a way that it can at this moment in time. Susan, what do you make of this? And also, you know, how do you how do you imagine uh, the messaging is going to change around campaigns on both sides as we start to see gas prices tick up? Right, it, they've already started as of recording, and it looks like going into next week, this is you know it's going to be a lot of news around this. There is. And what's also going to be important that we don't talk about um, in July and August is the cost of home heating oil. So it's kind of like a twofer here. It's you're going to see it at the gas pumps and then you're going to see it when you're starting to heat your home. In New York and other cities, October 1st is when the heat is required to go on in buildings. So you're going to see that affect rents and other things. But the home heating oil is also important when we look at Europe and what they're facing because this is meant to disrupt. Mike is absolutely right. It's not, it's about our elections, but it's disrupting our our NATO relationships, our relationships around the world. We talk about Ukraine getting into NATO. We talk about all of these other things. Uh, There's a lot going on in Italy right now. So I think this global upheaval is exactly what Putin is looking for. Now, I think it's really bad and stupid policy coming from Saudi Arabia, frankly, because they've got to learn how to think more than five minutes in advance, because helping Putin is not going to get them to where they want to go more long term. So I was a little surprised to see that. But back at home, when you see that prices going up and and Ron, you've talked you and I've talked about this, when you see inflation The prices aren't going to go back down. They're not like oil prices. They can't tick up and down the same way. The prices are going to stay the same. People are going to feel it going to the supermarket. 
paying $4.99 for a dozen eggs. It's just a lot for people to absorb. And while I think abortion is an important issue that will get have gotten women to register and they will vote on it, we're talking about those really in the swing states that 5 to 15% that as of the Lincoln Project always talked about of Republican voters who make a difference. So that's where I see in, in the polling I'm familiar with is is really starting to take effect of independents or right-leaning uh, or independent-minded Republicans, I should say. They still have a problem with the way the economy's going. So I, I, I think the re- Democrats were getting a little too giddy about their chances. Andy, I want to zoom out a little bit um, and ask you what you what you make of uh, you know, okay. So we've talked a bit about, uh, on the show about the importance of Biden resetting America as a leader on the world stage. It's, it's been a recurring theme. And I wonder how you think the move by Saudi Arabia to cut oil production impacts that, especially, you know, looking in the rear view mirror, we had Biden visit MBS. We also had him go to Venezuela, right? At the same time as he's trying to make this, uh, and I think, you know, more recently doing it very imperfectly, appeal to upholding democratic norms and ideals uh, and sort of being the leader of the free world and yet cozying up to the people who produce oil. Yeah, we need it. But also they are sort of avatars of, you know, the worst, the, the worst systems, the worst autocracies in the world. So I wonder what you make of, uh, of, of how, how, this, how this move is going to impact his, his image in that way. Biden took a big gamble when he decided to go to Saudi Arabia for his fist bump diplomacy moment with MBS. He did not raise the issue of Jamal Khashoggi's execution at the direction of MBS. He did not raise human rights violations. He did not bring up any of those democracy-related issues that back here in the States, he has made a centerpiece of his midterms message, the speech he gave in Philadelphia, other remarks he's made and, and, and positions that he and the administration have taken. So he put it out there very specifically to try to convince the Saudis to not do what they have just now done. It failed. The gamble did not work. The bet did not pay off. In fact, it was a huge bust. And it's hard to not see this decision by OPEC, especially, you know, led by the Saudis, the Russians, as not only a huge slap in the face for Biden and the administration, but also a bigger dent in the U.S.'s place around the world and the ability of U.S. diplomacy to have an impact in this particularly fraught moment, not just on the geopolitics of Europe and of Asia and the Middle East, but also trying to play this energy game where energy really is a proxy for the global relations between these these countries. What do they call the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, right? The special relationship. And it's been that way for generations. But that special relationship, after what we've just seen in the last six months, seems to either be on its last legs or maybe it's over and we just don't realize it yet. I just can't see how Biden walks away from this one without seeming a diminished leader on the world stage, given that the Saudis are closer to the Russians and they're all trying to triangulate to stay in the good graces of China. It's not a good place to be in for the U.S. right now, especially with this war underway uh, in Ukraine. You say it might be over and we just don't realize it yet. And I wonder if, you know, it, it is over. The national security apparatus knows it's over, but no one wants to say it out loud because of the diplomatic fallout that would ensue. And I wonder if that's actually where we are. But um, but it does seem these 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 old alliances are strained beyond repair at this point. There's um, one other one other piece of news on the sort of global financial uh, situation. Monday, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development put out their annual report on the global economic outlook. Uh, and in it, they warned that the Federal Reserve and other central banks risk pushing the global economy into recession if they keep raising interest rates. Uh, the report warned that a percentage point raise in the Fed's key interest rate would result in a lower economic output in other rich countries by half a point to uh, you know 0.8% in poor countries over the next three years. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. 
the estimate in that uh, so far this year, the Fed's rate increases would result in $360 billion in reduction in poor countries' economic output over the next three years. Um, and at a news conference, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell basically said, do you hear something? <laughs> is that, is that, like, we take the impact of our policies uh, on the rest of the world into account, uh, and we're going to keep doing what we're doing, raising rates. Um, you know, he says to bring down inflation. Susan, as we, as we talked about, you know, like, uh, when you when you vastly increase the money supply, you you don't take inflation out of the system. It's just there permanently. You've just set a new high water mark, and the water doesn't go down. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that they uh, one one of the things that I think a lot of people think about inflation that isn't true is that oh, it can be mitigated. And it's going it, like prices are going to come down. They're going to go back to where they were before. Especially because that's the way the Biden administration is talking about it, right? And Democrats are talking about it, and and. Even Republicans, like, we got to get inflation, we got to get prices back down. That's not the way it works. And I wonder to what extent that messaging really just, you know, creates a trap for them in the future, right? Well, I think the trap is practical because prices won't go down and yet your interest rates on your credit card are going to go up. You're going to owe more money. And if you want to get a, buy a home, you're not going to be able to afford a new home. Housing prices are not just unattainable for for most Americans right now, but getting a mortgage at the new rates is insane. It's it's just it's it's untenable. So again, I, I hate to go back to these practical, just real everyday life tangibles um, when you guys are having such a great, like bigger conversation. But that's what I look at when I, I'm thinking about the messaging issues. It's very hard to tell somebody oh, go out and buy a home or, you know, you have less debt when you don't, when it costs more to buy things. And yes, you're, you you may have received a 5% wage increase, but everything else costs 9% more. So you're feeling the strain and it is economics. And then you add, you know, just weaving back into the conversation about um, OPEC and Putin, one of the things that Biden had gotten a lot of kudos for was putting us back in a very strong position on the global stage. So now that is kind of ticking around too. So where are the where are the strengths of the Biden administration right now? And that's what people aren't seeing. Even though I actually can point to several really good things they've done. I mean, look at the chip manufacturing bill. Yeah. Look at chip infrastructure. Huge. huge. Gun reform, like that is, these are tremendous things that we've been talking about for, for decades that they were able to do. But again, it goes to their messaging problem because how those things aren't leaping off the page as someone who's been involved in this business for over 30 years is just mind boggling. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the big risk here, right? A lot, a lot of the chatter about the economy is if Fed keeps doing this, they're going to, they're going to tip us into a maybe not just a recession, but a depression. It could be very, very ugly. Um, something that really hasn't uh, been top of mind is what that would do to developing countries around the world, right? That are, that are already suffering. And I, you know, out, outside of just what happens in America, who, if that happens, right? If we go down there, and I don't really like doing hypotheticals on the show without like really knowing what's going to happen, but it seems pretty likely uh, that, that that's a big risk. Who owns that if it happens? Um, and I don't mean substantively. I mean in the in the court of public opinion, Mike. Who owns a global, you know, economic depression or a or a collapse? I love how you hate going down this rabbit hole of depression hypotheticals, and then put me on the spot with the question. <laughs> Why not? Step in, Mike. What do you think? The, the world is. Take a deep breath and ponder that. We need your sunny optimism. Yeah, on right, this ask the optimist, Mike Madrid. The world is on the brink of global depression. Who? How does this play out politically? Um, well, <laughs> let me say this. I'm actually one of the people who is actually cheering on the rise of interest rates because, I, I, look, I'm going to say it. We need a recession. I, inflation is so out of control that you have to slam the brakes on the economy because if you, regardless of the political repercussions, because if you don't and we and we get into a series, uh, a cycle of hyperinflation, you want to talk about loss of stature in the world. Uh, the, the, the U.S., um, it, it will change not just the geopolitical climate forever. 
it will it will it will be far more devastating to the economy than a, a a slowdown, even a significant one in the economy. That is the only way to get this under control. That's why they're behaving the way they are. Is they are seeing the red lights, they're slamming on the brakes and saying, "Come hell or high water, we can't lose the entire system here. We're gonna have to slow down the economy and slow down the the, the rate that money is flowing around to the economy right now." I, I, I'm, I'm a supporter of it. There's, there's no good choices here. There's no good options. It's between bad and really bad, right? And they're choosing bad. So look, I, this exacerbates all sorts of other racial tensions. All I can say is I do believe that there is something different in the global order that is emerging. And the reason why is if we, I think so many of us, I guess maybe old guys like me are still, you know, tend to lean into the Cold War construct of, of you know, good guys, bad guys, right and left, right? And this new, this new autocracy that has emerged that is funded and, and coordinated in this complex way, it, it's so clear to see that what's happening in Brazil with Bolsonaro is the same thing as Orban in in Hungary, is the same thing as as Putin in Russia, is as um, you know Le Pen in France, and 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 the movement in Italy and Sweden, and so on and so forth. That is the nature of the global structure that is emerging. Saudi Arabia is throwing in with its side, and it's basically saying, "I'm in. I'm casting my lot with with the bad guys." From our perspective, right. And and so when we look at it that way, I think we have to examine not just the political structure, but the potentiality of what it means economically, because economic warfare is is as going to be as common as cyber warfare, as common as kinetic warfare. And and they're all intertwined in a way that we have never seen conflict before as a species. That doesn't mean that there haven't been elements of it before, but the global economy was not this integrated in the 40s. Okay, it wasn't this integrated during the Cold War. In, in fact, there's some really strong arguments to be made that, that the global hegemony of the United States during the Cold War made our victory, if you want to call it that, inevitable at some point, right? The price of gas is what was keeping up. price of oil was what was keeping the Soviet empire afloat. And when, when, when the price of oil collapsed, so did the empire, well, that's what they're fighting against right now, right? If Putin can keep the price of oil high, he can keep funding the machine. And it's not just his machine now. It's a global machinery. And so who gets blamed and who doesn't get blamed, I hate to say it, is, is it's an important question. But on the hierarchy of concerns of what's happening with the emerging global order, I, I don't know that we've got a choice, right? But it's also funny because the, who gets blamed? I think is simply the other guy, because that's how it gets passed around in that circle. No matter what your perspective is, there will be able to allow for the other guy did it and and look and and try and maybe perhaps build themselves up. Someone builds themselves up saying they can fix it, but no one's fixing it to Mike's point. It's not a problem that us versus them or them versus us, that there's there's this way of 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 coming together and getting this done properly. There's too much of a, there's too much at stake here. So I think Mike's point about needing like some kind of massive restructuring um, based on a complete collapse is what is necessary to rebuild. What I think too about the, uh, getting back to your, your, your question, Ron, of, you know, how does this play out? Who's blamed or where is this felt, this this UN report about the global aftershocks of the actions of the Fed or, you know, the, the aftershocks of the Bank of England? You know, we're seeing a whole crisis unfold there as well. It puts me back in the mindset of 2008, 2009, 2010. The Fed, to so many people, and these, you know, these, these, these financial, the lords of high finance here and abroad, it's such a black box to so many people, both in that country and around the world. But the effects are felt. The effects of a rate hike in the U.S. are going to be felt in India. They're going to be felt in Vietnam. They're going to be felt in Eastern Europe. They're going to be felt in South America. I think about the, the roots of the you know, nationalist, populist 
groundswell in America dating back to the Fed giving basically a blank check to every financial institution that had made bad decisions and now needed a bailout. And when I see the Fed saying, you know, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, yes, this is going to ripple around the world, but this is what Jerome Powell thinks needs to happen, you're going to fuel those same emotions, those same backlashes in countries that are already grappling with a nationalist, an autocratic groundswell like in India, for instance, or in Hungary. And I just, I fear that the Fed, whether this is right or wrong, just does not take these things into consideration, does not think about the geopolitical consequences of decisions like this. And it's this very myopic, like, how do we tame this one specific granted major problem in our country? Mike, uh, when you run for office one day, you know, somebody's going to run the ad. I think we need a recession. Right. Meet the real Mike Madrid. I will Madrid. never win the Iowa caucuses because this tape will come up and will be held against me, I'm sure. <laughs> Who's the attack at? Who, who's the super PAC? The anti well, Don't even ask because we all know the answer to that one. <laughs> On Wednesday... Joe Biden traveled to Florida to see the destruction caused by Hurricane Ian. After touring the Gulf Coast by helicopter, Biden met briefly with DeSantis and his wife, Casey. Biden and DeSantis also told reporters that their administrations are working together on the rescue and recovery efforts, according to CNN. DeSantis said, quote, I'm just thankful everyone has banded together. Mr. President, welcome to Florida. We appreciate working together across various levels of government. Biden said the cooperation has been extraordinary and said, quote, we have very different political philosophies, but we've worked hand in glove, end quote. Uh, so Biden spent a lot of his administration talking about the need for unity. He also got attacked uh, by the right and by me and by a lot of people on this podcast for not actually being unifying in his speech in Philadelphia earlier this summer. Um, and we were watching this trip down to Florida to, uh, to see just how the you know, fireworks were going to play out. Um, and I wonder, you know, I think last week we were talking about whether this leadership test for DeSantis, you know, emerging as an adult who can handle a crisis, uh, you know, going into the primaries in 2024, um, how that how that was going to play out. Mike, so you were here last week. We talked about that. And I wonder how you think moments like this impact uh, Biden's image as a unifier. How do you think he did on this test and DeSantis on his, on this test? Yeah, I think for Biden, I think both of them did just fine. I mean, the, the way to really look at it is how are they being viewed in their respective media bubbles, right? I mean, the, the other, the other, the other guy's going to be attacked regardless of what they do. You know, Biden could come in and wave a magic wand and fix all of the damage overnight, and they'd be like, "Oh, that wand was made in China." Like, you know, it's you know, it, 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 it's just the way it works now. And and I, I think I think the bigger question, like I said last week, and I continue to believe this, it's not going to be the immediate reactions to to the damage and to the storm. the The danger for DeSantis is the long term rebuild, especially with the insurance problems that they have in Florida. Right? It's it's these things take time. Like in, entire cities are getting wiped out. That that you're not going to build that, you know, overnight. You're not going to finish that by the midterms, right? Like this is going to take years, and there's going to be stories, and there's going to be problems, and there's going to be complications, and it's going to be expensive, and there's going to be big questions about who's paying for what, and what does that mean in terms of waste and fraud, you know, uh, and all of th that's the danger for DeSantis. It's going to be the slow, you know, cut by you know. Death by a thousand cuts. That that's his problem. For for Biden, I think I, this was probably a more immediate test where he could come in and 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 be, I guess, more of a uniter. I was one of those people that liked the Philadelphia speech a lot. I think think he should have leaned into it more, um, and 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 raised the stakes even higher because I think that's where we're at in this moment. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I I think both of them probably got a passing grade, but it was on uh, it was on a first test. That doesn't count for much in the grand scheme of the way they're going to be viewed, and and so so good. Congratulations, good start. Like we've passed that low bar of as Americans, where two dogs can get in there and shake hands instead of barking at each other and ripping each other's face off in, uh, in front of the cameras. Like congratulations, Andy. What did you make of the of the scene? It gave me flashbacks to 2012 
Chris Christie in the fleece blazer jacket, Obama, this sort of bear hug there that I think a lot of people said benefited Obama in that last stretch before the the election against Mitt Romney. But Mike's mention of media bubbles, though, perks my ears up a little bit. The president flying in and gripping the hand of the governor, you know, amidst a sort of disaster strewn landscape is, you know, one of these classic iconic images in American politics. But, you know, 2012 to now, 10 years, I mean, it's been an eon in terms of media and changes in politics. I wonder, does the, does the, 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 the disaster scene play like it did in 2012? Does it have the same resonance? Or if everyone is looking at it through their filter bubble, through their self-selected hermetic Facebook feed or, you know, set of news sites that they go to, does it not matter anymore? Would it, would it, would it not matter if Biden was uh, antagonistic toward DeSantis or, or supportive or vice versa for DeSantis? I don't know, because I think, for better and worse, I'm in this world so much, while also trying to navigate these these media bubbles. But, you know, I'm curious um, what everyone else makes of that in this in this era now. Well, I th- a few things. One is, you, you look at the two men going into the crowds, if you will, or greeting each other. You have DeSantis, who only can lead from a podium. He does not have the warm, fuzzy emotion gene. It doesn't exist. He does not, he is not relatable that way with people. Whereas Joe Biden does, which when the president comes into town, that's what you want to see. And it, based on the president's words and DeSantis's words, the federal government is doing its job. It's getting the money. It's, it's providing the service. The bigger question for DeSantis is because he doesn't have that emotion gene or the I'm with you or know how to be in the community gene is what services is he providing immediately? Which kind of goes to Mike's point, I think a little bit as well. Will people see something being done? I mean, just show me how the election's going to work there in Lee County. Show me how that election's going to work. Where People want absentee ballots. Where do they get sent to? Early voting, yeah, there's no voting places. Show me how services are being provided because now more than ever, and it does go to those media bubbles, you're going to have people on the ground. What story is going to be told? And for DeSantis, he can only play the service card, which means he needs Biden an awful lot, which will make Biden look better because DeSantis is, in fact, that small petty man who, you know, sent... Uh, a bunch of migrants to Martha's Vineyard under false pretenses. So he he looks like he had to, you know, basically take it on the chin a little bit to to get good service from the federal government, whereas Biden just had to be Biden because that's who he is. Yeah. Susan kind of comes how, across as the bigger man. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Andy. Just Susan, real quick, actually hearing you talk about watching DeSantis in this moment, how does that inform, how does that shape how you think of him as a 20... 24 contender. Not to always make it about presidential races, but my brain kind of works that way, so I apologize. But that's that's an interesting observation that I hadn't really even thought to to pluck out of this particular moment. Yeah, it's been something I've been watching because if you remember when Trump was uh, talking about running, one of the things that everyone said was he'll never do it because he's such a germaphobe. He'll never shake hands. He wouldn't have that relatability. Well, I, I don't know if Ron DeSantis is a germaphobe or not, but he certainly does not have a lot of re, re, uh, relatability. And so I wonder when he has to go plus, press the flesh in a primary situation, how he will do. Again, only being from the perspective of the podium and his advertising. Is that enough? But I think when you look at him in 2024, not having that emotion gene is going to really, I think, take some... Uh, wind out of his sails. Andy, there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about here because you've spent a lot of time thinking about conspiracy theory uh, theorists and the conspiracy theory branch of the Republican base. And I wonder how you think a group like that would view a cordial relationship between Biden and DeSantis. What, are they, how, what, how, do, how does that information get filtered into a 
into a conspiracy theorist's uh, sort of media bubble? It really depends on the degree of conspiracy theorist we're talking about here. I mean, if we're talking about a an entry level blue belt, I think blue belt is somewhere near the start. <laughs> Someone's going to call me out in the comments on this. I know, but but a starter level, an intermediate conspiracy theorist, I think that's pretty easily dismissed. It's not. It's not going to change anyone's mind. That's for sure, because that just does not happen. But it'll be sort of brushed aside. Of you know, okay, well. DeSantis had to do this, or you know what the media is telling me about this probably isn't true. You get more into the hardcore camp, though, and I mean I've seen some of this already online, and it is some of it is that you know that these scenes that we're seeing in Florida aren't actually real, and DeSantis is playing some kind of theater to make himself look like a presidential contender. Because remember. Some of these real hardcore conspiracy theorists do not like him. They don't want him. They see him as a threat to Donald Trump. They're God Emperor. Don't want to have anything to do with him. He is a threat. So it's been interesting to watch in the last, you know, week or so the sort of fight for narratives play out, which one catches people, hits people in the right place, hits that right note in the sort of dark corners of the internet. It's been the stuff I've seen has been interestingly interpreted as a, as a negative for, for DeSantis and is seen as, in some corners, a betrayal. How dare you even be seen on camera shaking hands with Biden, who is an illegitimate president in these people's minds. Um, and in some cases, it's even deeper. And it's like, this whole thing is exaggerated or part of some larger government plot to change the election or it's, it's as made up as the lunar landing. <laughs> it's right. It's, it's exactly. I mean, it's, it, but it, I think right now it's still in that sort of competition of narratives moment, which, which people are tossing things up, seeing what sticks and then what sticks and what appeals, what hits in that sweet spot. That's what people are gravitating to it, but it's, we're still in that flux spot. Natural disasters have a way of doing that. They really scramble people's brains in this world. And there's a sort of a, 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 a debate of like, well, what do we really think happened? Everyone give us your best ideas. Go. Yeah. Mike, That's to Andy's disturbing. point, like, <laughs> yeah. It, Welcome it to my life. <laughs> Welcome to my brain. I think you need to take a deep breath too, Andy. I, I, many deep breaths. Yeah. <laughs> breathe in. Breathe in what, Susan? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's going to get this. <laughs> and breathe out pink. I'm going to practice that in the corner over here. No, that's not a partisan euphemism. It really okay. isn't. I don't know what it is. I never know what it meant. It's been over 40 years I heard it, but... It served you well, clearly. You still think about this. It's incredible. Mike, so last last question here is on uh, something Andy just brought up, right? Which is, which is like, this is seen as a negative for DeSantis, right? Question is, what does this do to negative partisanship, right? What, how, what do you do with this information um, when we know negative partisanship is so high? Well, I, I mean, I've been listening and I've been disagreeing a little bit and doing a good job of just kind of breathing before jumping in. <laughs> um, the, the only the only takeaway I have taken from Ron DeSantis, except for kind of the memes that you see on the left, kind of with the white boots and kind of, you know, humiliating him and making fun of him, is he said there are people in the media and in Washington who are cheering for the storms to destroy Florida so that they can get partisan advantage. That to me was the money quote. That's that's what speaks to that partisan element. May even veer into the conspiracy theory stuff. I'll leave that in, uh, you know to Andy's expertise. But that to me is what consolidates the Republican base, and that's what's being heard in the right wing media sphere. Is these people want us to suffer. There are people who are cheering for our suffering. And that's how you partisanize a hurricane, by the way, right? Because we can partisanize anything in America now, right? And but that that's the way you partisanize natural disaster is 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 through those means. And DeSantis, I think, hit that out of out of the park. Like that's that's what he was doing, was saying the Democrats are are enjoying our suffering, right? They're 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 cheering on. The, our destruction, and um, and so in, in an environment where negative partisanship drives this stuff, that's that's how you speak to the base. It's how it's. I mean, I know we're going to talk about this too, but that that's what Herschel Walker's doing. 
you, there's there was nothing there was nothing beyond the pale anymore because we are we are so locked in that there's not this you know it's not 1992 where Hurricane Andrew ravages you know Florida and and George Herbert Walker Bush comes down and, and you know can struggles with his own compassion you know that that, that that that's not the way the media works anymore. You're looking you're looking on your own channels in your own way for your own message, even in the middle of the destruction of entire cities. And he's giving them that. He's feeding them that. The rest doesn't. I, I really don't think it matters. Is the, the people on the right are not seeing the same memes. They're not hearing the same message. They're not seeing a compassionate Joe Biden. Literally, the same clip can be pulled where the left is saying, oh, yeah, look, here he is. He's strong. He's compassionate. And Ron DeSantis looks deflated. And, you know, one second later, the angles are a little bit different. And they'll be like, oh, Joe Biden's got dementia. And he doesn't know where he's at. And he thinks he's in the middle of the White House Rose Garden. And he's really in the middle of destruction. And and that's just, that's just you know, unfortunately, the way we've devolved, I want to evolve, but devolved into these echo chambers where we're just reinforcing the same the same notions of what we want to hear, even in the midst of destruction. We can't we can't even agree on that anymore. I feel like this entire uh show so far has been a big build up to our Politicology Plus uh segment after after the uh, in the after show. So on that, let's turn to Georgia. The Georgia Senate race remains one of the most watched and highly contested Senate races this cycle. Um, our partners over at DDHQ, Decision Desk HQ, have the races as a lean D uh, and have a polling average with Senator Raphael Warnock with a one-point lead over Herschel Walker. Uh, 538's average has Warnock up by about four points. During the campaign, Walker has claimed that he wants to completely ban abortion. He's likened it to murder and has said... There should be no exception for rape, incest, or the life of the mother. But according to a Monday article in the Daily Beast, Herschel Walker reimbursed a former girlfriend for her abortion when she got pregnant while the two were dating in 2009. She told the Daily Beast that he urged her to get the abortion. She even has the literal receipts, including the receipt from the clinic, a get well card from Walker, and a bank deposit receipt uh, with an image of a signed $700 personal check from Walker. According to the woman... Walker told her it was not the right time for him to have a child. And on Wednesday morning, Walker told Fox News host Brian Kilmeade that he had no clue about the incident and said it was an attack from desperate Democrats. And that's when the anonymous woman revealed that she is, in fact, the mother of one of Walker's children. Uh, And Walker has publicly acknowledged that child on his own. She provided the Daily Beast with evidence of a long-term relationship with Walker that continued after the abortion. So, um, there's a lot of chatter right now uh, about just how big of a bombshell this story is and what a crater it's going to make in Walker's campaign. And uh, and a lot of that chatter is from sort of the media and left-leaning pundits. And um, you know, personally, I don't see it. Uh, I don't see it changing much of anything in the dynamic, but I'd love to hear what the three of you think. Um, uh, Susan, why don't you lead off? Sure. I agree with you. I'm not sure what a big dent it's going to make in the actual outcome, because I'm also one of these people who do not think that that Georgia is as purple as people played it out to be. I do think it is still a leaning red state. It is a Republican state. We're seeing that with with Kemp's numbers against Stacey Abrams. He has anywhere between a five and nine point lead on her. So we do see Georgia looking like they want to go back to being a Republican state. What I think we see, we're going to see in the Warnock and Herschel Walker case is that people are just not going to vote for um, Walker. And they may not vote for Warnock either, but it'll be similar to what we saw in some states in 2020, where people just say enough or what happened in Georgia in the special election. Republicans just won't vote for that race. I don't think it's going to make them vote against Herschel Walker. I just think that they just say, Kemp, yes, I'm there. I I can't even get involved because they really do not want, I believe Georgia right now, again, more leaning red is, would like to see the Senate flip, but I don't think they're willing to sell their soul to get there. So they just won't vote. Mike, we know abortion has sort of its own physics, right? As an issue. Um, 
And this this uh, this story is right up there with you know the Access Hollywood tape in terms of how damaging it should be, right? Or, or somebody might think it would be for a candidate. Uh, you know, you know. So should the allegations of domestic violence that preceded this revelation, but it really hasn't uh, hasn't stuck the way you might think it would. And this one just is like you know the height of hypocrisy on one of you know what is most one of the most incendiary issues of the year uh, of the decade, right? And and yet. Um, what do you, what do you make of how much this will or won't matter to voters in Georgia and, you know, uh, and the dissonance required to, um, to, you know, separate yourself from the, from the hypocrisy. So look, this is not a knockout punch, right? But, but it's definitely a standing eight. Uh, this guy's, this guy's dizzy. He's, this is a haymaker to the jaw. He doesn't, I mean, guy's a little dizzy anyway, right? He doesn't know where he's at. He doesn't know what his message is. And the danger, this is this is an absolute clinic uh, on crisis communications in the middle of a campaign because it, both both sides, by the way, Warnock, of course, is just going to kind of you know try to fade back into the wallpaper and let this play out because n- none of this is bad for him. Walker right now has got to make some really important decisions. And they are doing something that I have never seen before uh, ever, okay? And I've, I've had a bunch of candidates in a really bad spot. So I think I'm done – you know, a, a ton of campaigns in my time. And uh, when you're in a sticky situation like this, you really have three. We used to think you had three options. The first is you deny it. The second is you deny it and say, it's just, it just wasn't that big of a deal. It's not important. The, the voters care about something else. The, the third option is you, de- you, 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 you acknowledge it rather. You acknowledge it and say, I'll, I, I, I will never do it again. I was wrong and beg forgiveness. Walker's chosen a fourth path, which I have never seen before, and that is he's 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 essentially he's taking an insanity defense, which is I I don't I don't know if I did it or not. I don't think I did, but even if I did, it, I God's forgiven me, and we all know that I've got mental health issues, so I'm not really capable of understanding. And this guy, like, I've never seen the insanity defense. Okay, Mike, it's just, that's it. Like, you hit it so perfectly. Right, like, you really, really did. Like, the insanity really defense. I hope that just yeah. goes, like, wildfire because you're so and right. I've never seen that. I mean, I've never yeah, seen that in a political a campaign dude. before. Like, I've seen it as a legal strategy. And you're like, okay, whatever, tweaky defense. And you roll your eyes. But, like, he's the Senate candidate. And it's like. Yeah, that's a mic drop. Yeah, like, I mean, he, wow. He's like, I'm I just I'm I'm pleading insanity, you know, and and yeah. the Republican establishment is doubling down on it, right? That's the message, <laughs> and so I'm like going, man, I'm really old because like that never even would have occurred to me, like ever, to just be like our candidate's insane, and we can hold the base <laughs> together with that. Like he's just nuts, right? Now, now, having having said that, the biggest problem that the campaign faces is. The story came out on October 4th. There's 30 days. The Access Hollywood camp, you know, that was seven, eight days before the election. This dude's got a a month. And and don't think this is the last story, right? The Daily Beast, the the Daily Beast played it perfectly. You know, it's anonymous. Here it is. They knew he was going to take the bait and deny it, right? Because he's clearly lied to his own campaign too, right? And that's the worst spot to be in as a professional, right? Is your candidates lied to you and you know there's bad stuff, but you don't know what it is. You don't know how to defend against it. So, you know, the, the Daily Beast. Plus your candidate's insane, so you don't know what to believe. Yeah, and, and, and that's, you, can see, you can literally see the campaign room, right, in the war room when they're like, he's insane. Let's let's lean into the insane. Like, that's it'll work. It'll work. Our people will go for it. And, and they are. Let's be authentic. Right? I believe it. Right? It's like, no, no, he's, he's too it, insane. his son, too? His son, too, is like cutting videos every single day, his, posting them, right? literally his ripping son's a big it. TikToker. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the dynamics are, are, are like I said, I, I, I've i never <laughs> seen that 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 play before. But, you know, God bless them, I guess. They're, they're trying something. I mean, what do you got? The, it, it, maybe that, that if, if this happens seven days out, it, they, may, they may have gotten away with it. They, they may yet. I don't know. But what I will say is the timing is the worst problem. Because now he's got to keep saying, I'm insane, I'm insane, I'm insane, when all these other stories come out. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I did it. Yeah, I guess I've got three more kids. Yeah, I guess I paid for four more abortions. Like, I don't know, right? Like, but but 
you know, it's going to make that debate look really interesting. Senator, how'd you vote on the defense reauthorization? <laughs> I'm insane. I don't, I don't know. I was. I don't yeah, remember being it, there. Doesn't and matter. That's what we're realizing in politics is like these old rules don't apply anymore. Like when when you're right. using the insanity defense it, it, for a U.S. Senate candidate and people are, are with you, like what what are we doing? Like there's no more rules. The old right. rules. Newt Gingrich really did lean into it as well in saying he did get hit yeah. in the head a lot. So you know he was yep. he got brain damage. Is what he's saying. Well, he's got brain damage. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, and then people are like, oh, okay. He, he has a record hall of fundraising, you know, that day because nationally, there's nationalized elections. And and like I said, I, 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 I think Susan's exactly right. He's got to hold on to absolutely everybody in the Republican base and get an independent break. If he loses two or three points— um, then, then you know, he's done. And he he was having a lot of trouble consolidating the Republican base anyway because people intuitively knew the guy was having trouble just as he reached that point where he was actually in a couple of polls topping out over Warnock and the, and the average was tightening up. You see this bomb drop and it, it just reinforces all of the hesitation that a lot of Republicans had about this candidate. And I do think that there will be a defection uh, or or sitting it out, as, as as Susan said, both of which are extremely damaging to a candidate who was kind of on on the edge anyway. I, I don't think it's a knockout punch, by the way. I don't, he's not done. I, I think I think, but I do think there's a lot of time left where he's going to have to take a lot more punches, and I, we're just going to see how long the insanity defense works and plays out. Andy, as a uh, <laughs> as a journalist watching all of this play out. Right. I, we should note, by the way, Charlie Sykes wrote a piece for the Bulwark um, uh, saying this is a preview of 2024. And one of the things that stood out uh, in that piece is um, he, he says it's nothing, right? These abortion accusations are nothing, uh, change nothing because, quote, ideological indecency matters more than personal failures. That's the way the right sees this. So I wonder... Uh, I wonder what your take on the reaction from Republicans is on this. We've talked a lot about character on, on this show, and and I don't even want to start pulling on that thread. But what, what do you what do you make of the reaction to this? Like the physics of the reaction from Republicans? It makes me think about Trump's infamous comments about shooting someone on Fifth Avenue and not losing a vote about it. I mean, we are living through the. Fifth Avenueification, if you will, of American politics. It's there. There is no depth to which you can sink, as long as it is, in you know, in loyalty to the party, to the tribe, to the base, to the dear leader, that will get you cast out. I mean, the joke that I would always tell my friends during the Trump years was, you know, the real breaking news story for me, the real monumental scoop would be. Trump apologizing for something or Trump expressing, you know, support for the global order and saying that NATO is a great thing. Like we got all these stories, an endless cascade of stories of Trump doing Trump things. And eventually I'm like, why is this a breaking news alert from the New York Times? You're just telling me something I already pretty much knew with a new bit of, you know, topping sprinkled on it. Same thing with Herschel Walker here. I mean, the the, the fact of it alone, the hypocrisy of it alone is staggering, but his defense, as Mike has so eloquently described it, and the res- you know the response and and the commitment, the doubling down, feels absolutely of a piece with Trump, with Doctor Oz, with all of these Trumpy, Trumpist candidates. I mean, what I'm really interested in with Walker's election, Oz's election. Mark Fincham for Secretary of State of Arizona to pick another one out. These feel to me like the post-Trump presidency test cases. How does the Republican Party, how do the voters in these states respond to these candidates who in a lot of ways embody different elements of Trumpism without being the man himself? I mean, I'm Herschel Walker at this point after this bombshell story is probably maybe the test case race. It's in Georgia. It's a super high-profile, heavily funded campaign. What do the voters actually do? How do the people of Georgia react to this? Because 
if the Fifth Avenueification of politics continues, then they vote for Herschel Walker and we get Senator Herschel Walker and all bets are off at that point. But if they sit, sit it out as they did in those Georgia special elections in 2021, maybe that is a data point that suggests a slightly altered path than just the pure Trump path. So that, that's, that's the sort of meta story to me why this race is every twist and turn of it is so fascinating to me because it's like, what is this going to tell us about the, the, the country writ large? And do I want to know what, it, what that is when it happens? I just keep thinking of like the new state motto, like Georgia, insanity's too far. <laughs> <laughs> so for your next book, uh, it will be titled The Fifth Avenueification of America. <laughs> I, I don't know if you're going to fit all those letters on the, on the, on the title, but... Tiny <laughs> font all the way. Or do it horizontal, you know? It'll be, yeah, it'll be 900 pages too, for that matter. All right, gang, now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's turn to what we're watching. Um, I'm going to lead off this week. I have two quick things to mention. Um, first is this, uh, uh, well, <laughs> Mike, there's the Showtime series that drops tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow, we're recording Thursday, it drops tomorrow and Friday of Showtime series. I'm talking about the five-part docuseries that, uh, that Showtime is releasing on the Lincoln Project. and um, I, uh, I don't really know what to say about it other than, um, I think people should watch it. Mike, do you want to share a little bit about, about the, no, I, I don't, we, we probably shouldn't go <laughs> yeah. too far, too far, too far into this. Uh, I, I will say though, we've got a special, um, podcast series Politicology is producing, working on right now in post-production, uh, with a lot of the staff from the Lincoln project that did really extraordinary work. Uh, a lot of the staff from my team, especially from Mike's team, um, that that really go uh, sort of deeply into how we did what we did uh, beyond the you know beneath the surface beyond the ads that you saw. Um, so I'm looking forward to, to to putting that out and bringing that to the politicology audience. But um, but other than that, is there anything we should uh, tell people about the Showtime series? I think what makes it unique is that it was I think it's the first time in probably a generation where cameras were allowed into a campaign to see what was happening in real time. And one of the things that makes it interesting as a documentary is it's not a look back where you're piecing a story together. It's it's real it's it's real time. It's 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 as things were happening. So whatever judgments you have about the organization or the work that was done or the players involved, uh, it, it is an interesting assessment of watching something emerge, something be imp- implemented and executed, and then obviously come to a very different ending than anybody anticipated. And there's a lot of storylines, um, really fascinating storylines. And I, I think it's, you know, it's, I, I, w- I think you and I and, and, and Susan are probably just too close, too to, close to really to have, have real, an honest yeah. assessment of what it was. Like, I, I look at it and I'm like, they yeah. should have said this, they should have said that. It's they missed this part. Oh, yeah. they missed and, this. And yeah, so, but right. I, I do think yeah. from 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 you know I, I, as as objective as I can be, I would be excited as a politico just for just to see how a campaign kind of works, and I think that 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 alone I think makes it for some interesting viewing. Okay, so anyways, that's happening on Friday, uh, the day the roundup com- comes out. Um, also, by the way, this one I'm super excited about. I, I don't know that how big of a political story this is, but down the road, it certainly will be. It's Nobel Prize season. So everybody's gotten those breaking news alerts. You know, the Nobel Prize have been awarded in this and that. Okay. The Nobel Prize in physics has gone to three scientists who proved that quantum entanglement is real and not just theoretical. So for, for, I've been for, struggling with that, by the, the way. The non-nerds. Okay, so let me yeah. Wait, I know. So I let me just no let me idea just, where you could go this, with this. All I know is I, know. I was I don't not care about, nominated I, and I did not I win. Let me tell you, let me tell you why you should care about this, because I don't care about any of the other Nobel Prizes. I didn't even know that this experiment was going on, that they had done this, because this is the thing. Quantum entanglement is the thing that Einstein hated about the physical models of the universe. He didn't like it, he didn't think it existed. Uh, and there's been this sort of, you know, all of the technological revolution, uh, has been predicated on of recent, you know, recent years has been predicated on this thing being true. We don't know why it's true. It's true in theory, but it's what, it's what makes your, 
you know, smartphone able to do what it does from satellites to everything relies on this theory of quantum entanglement. Quantum entanglement is basically says, uh, you can do this with photons. These, these researchers did it with photons, but you take tiny particles and you can, uh, you, you basically smash them and you take two parts and they go opposite directions and they have no, you know, according to a Newtonian sort of clockwork view of the universe, um, they have nothing to do with each other. But if you change the spin of one in one place, the other one could be on the other side of the universe and it also changes its spin. Basically, there's, there, we don't know why it works, but these guys did a real experiment and proved that it works, that it's actually real and not just theoretical. So here's, it's, it's um, uh, basically, you can communicate information across vast distances instantaneously and that is the that is the the value here. We're already doing it, but now we know it's real. This is going to help uh, encrypt information. It, it like bear with me here. This could even lead to teleportation uh, research. Finally, or like, that's Andy's the implication. Like that's the implication of this. I think like, it's going to lead to Andy's next book on conspiracy theories <laughs> because there's most, a good one mo- somewhere here. No, no, but most practically, most practically is encryption. And as we all know, like quantum computers are a thing. They're tiny and they're not really practical right now, but they will be soon. Like they're, they're accelerating quickly, but encryption, which keeps all of your data private and secret that you don't want people to have access to all, you know, Google's data servers, Amazon's data, where all of our information is stored, all of that is kept secure by encryption. Well, if quantum uh, quantum computing becomes a reality, that encryption is very quickly breakable, and quantum computing relies on this entanglement um, uh, to work. And so, you need to start thinking about a future where all of the information that you have ever created is decrypted and available. TikTok, TikTok is going to be nuts. So, going forward, <laughs> I know, man, <laughs> or whatever the yeah. So anyway, that it's really cool. I. I uh, it's cool to me. Uh, <laughs> it's cool to me anyway. Um, uh, Mike, what do you got? I, this makes my Little Mermaid story really look irrelevant. I guess uh, <laughs> my eye, my eyes are on Brazil. Um, you know they've got the runoff between Lula and uh, Jair Bolsonaro um, happening on October twenty. The race um, actually was not. Uh, um, I don't want to say it wasn't closer or, or as close as people thought. I'm, I'm, as a, as a practitioner looking at the race, Lula, the challenger to the kind of dictator wannabe, um, possibly maybe Bolsonaro. Uh, Lula's numbers were basically dead on. The polling got it. There was this apparently a shy Bolsonaro vote, like a shy Trump voter where people were telling pollsters knowing that it was socially unacceptable to support a racist, homophobic dictator who wants to basically uh, have a military authoritarian rule over the country. Um, and they were, they were, they were backing a, a third party candidate. Well, w- when, when private you know, balloting happened, there was about a 10 point shift and in increase for Bolsonaro, which is concerning. But I still think if you just look at it, um, the chances of Lula winning this race are actually quite considerable. The hope, not unlike what we faced in 2020, was to try to increase the margin as much as possible so that the attempted coup, which is very likely, and he's already signaling will be coming, um, has less credence, has less worldwide um, support, international support. And the international community will come in and hopefully, presumably, help support the Brazilian people uh, in, in the outcome of their democratically elected government. So we'll see. That's all going to play out in the next three weeks or so. Um, I think it's going to have a, a, a significant um, effect in the international order. Brazil is an enormous country. It's a continental country. Um, Donald Trump and Viktor Orban both endorsed Bolsonaro the day before the election and the runoffs. This is part of this globally coordinated, connected strategy to help authoritarians. It's like the authoritarian help network that they all call, I guess, an 800 number and and help each other out. Um so eyes on Brazil. It's it's a big moment for what happens globally with with authoritarianism. Susan, what do you got? So last week the January sixth select committee hearings were postponed because of Hurricane Ian. 
We didn't have a whole lot of information about what they were going to be focused on. They usually put out a very nice narrative. Um, We didn't know if this was the wrap-up session before they come out with their findings. We're coming up against Election Day. It will be probably another week or so until they announce their, their next hearing. I'm just looking to see if that's going to be some sort of October surprise because we have also been able to move off the Jenny Thomas story, which was also competing with that hearing story at the same time because we knew that she wouldn't be giving live testimony. So I'm looking to see next week what the narrative is going to be on the final hearing that will come out at a time that could be very uh, difficult for some of those Republicans running for office. Yeah, good call. Andy, bring us home. My eyes are on Pennsylvania. I cannot get enough of this Senate race. And in the last few weeks, defying some odds or logic even, it looks like our pal Dr. Oz is finding his footing more and seems to be gaining in support, at least if the polls are to be believed. Someone, when I first started out as a journalist, said you could do worse than to watch Pennsylvania every election cycle for not just unbelievable storylines and ripe sources for reporting, but just to kind of take some of the pulse of the country. And it also happens to be close to D.C., so I can get up there as as quickly as I want. So I am just fascinated by... One, why Oz seems to be ticking up a little bit by whether the Democrat, John Fetterman, can make it through the end of the the campaign at this point, just because it seems like he's still dealing with some after effects of the, you know, this this stroke that he had, health scare that he had. This one feels like it's every vote is going to be battled out right up until election day and maybe even afterward if pennsylvania's uh last statewide election is anything to uh, judge by so i for for the larger currents the bigger stories about where we're headed i'm i'm watching any good story that comes out of pennsylvania and maybe even going there myself in this last stretch before before the election All right, guys, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, we're going to talk about the reporters who proved journalism is stronger than Donald Trump. Uh, Where can everybody find you on the internet, Andy? On Twitter at Andy Kroll. Nice and easy. Susan? On Twitter at Susan. I'm sorry. No, that's wrong. On Twitter (laughs) at Del Percio S. (laughs) I was about to give out my email address. That wouldn't have been very good. (laughs) That would have been really, really bad. I dare you. I dare you. (laughs) Find me on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. (laughs) And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, We'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. 